Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The bairn has gone to nursery, the pot of Yorkshire on the go, and we're going to take a deep dive into the decade that we haphazardly label the noughties, the 2000s, and to the football of its time. This is the Noughties Nostalgia Podcast, episode 46, and in episode 46 we'll be taking a look at Ruud van Nistelrooy. Is he the best marksman ever in the Premier League, or was his longevity just not enough to break that boundary is not in the 100 club but is in my heart <laughs> and we have a review of Fulham in the 2000s from promotion back to back almost promotions in the late 90s early 2000s to the Europa League final in 2010 as well reminder if you're enjoying this show please leave us a lovely five star review on whichever podcast platform you receive this podcast on also if you like our podcast content we've got bonus podcast content on patreon that's patreon.com forward slash what if football there where we have three podcasts a week mailbag full of what ifs as well as gaming content as well 350 days a year let's get stuck in to today's show our very first topic today is rude van nistelrooy around the ilk of yakubu kevin phillips james Beatty for premier league goals same amount of goals as Sadio Mane on 95, less than Raheem Sterling on 96 and Mo Salah on 97. This for me is just heresy when you consider that Ruud van Nistelrooy was quite possibly in goals to game, reckoning anyway, one of the very best in the Premier League. He just didn't stick around long enough and the, ultimately the passage of time was five years from his signing in 2001 to his departure to Real Madrid in 2006. However, it could have been oh so different. Stick around for a little what if on this <laughs> uh, later on. So, April 2000, Ruud van Nistelrooy looks set to join Manchester United as Teddy Sheringham winds down his career. Dwight York and Andy Cole still striking up that partnership that won Manchester United the treble, of course, but they are slightly on the way. Van Nistelrooy had won numerous Eredivisie trophies with PSV, won a golden boot of course, had a hat-trick in a Champions League tie, so he had that European pedigree as well. And um, for all intents and purposes, he was the man to take Manchester United forward into the new millennium. Darren Ferguson even persuaded his dad, Sir Alex, to watch him whilst he had uh, trials over there in the Netherlands. And watch him, they did, sending scouts over to a PSV game. They were impressed. 
pen to paper the deal was to go forward. Slight um, slight worries with his injury history, but then a brand new injury surfaced. Rude van Nistelrooy stricken with a, a ruptured knee ligament and once was a pacey striker, possibly loses half a yard, a yard, and loses a year out of the game through injury as well. So in his absence, or in his... Uh, in his absence, yeah. Manchester United win the league featuring Teddy Sheringham in that Rude Van Nistelrooy goal, wins a golden boot, wins player of the year. And finally, a year in the making, postponed, Manchester United receive Rude Van Nistelrooy, Teddy Sheringham goes off to Tottenham Hotspur. And by this stage, Van Nistelrooy is probably more of a poacher, more of a penalty box striker in those width of the post, six yards, tapping in and... Of course, his objections, of course, his outliers to this. You've got the long run against Fulham to complete a hat-trick, which was one of the many goals of Rude van Nistelrooy that I tried to recreate down the park, but never obviously came to fruition. I am a left-back by trade. <laughs> so there you go. Also, there's a counter goal against Arsenal, running 50 yards to uh, chip. Must have been David Seaman back in those days. Maybe uh, Jens Lehmann, maybe. And um, that goal would play a huge part in ushering in Rude van Nistelrooy's first real silverware in a Manchester United shirt, the 2002-3 Premier League title. And personally, from a personal standpoint, his first season in 2001-2 was very successful. 36 goals, PFA Players Player of the Year and broke new record for goals in consecutive Premier League games that would stand until 2015, of course, which were, which was only broken by Jamie Vardy, coincidentally, against Manchester United there. Uh, celebrating in front of the Man United fans. And uh, overall in his first two seasons, Rude Van Nistelrooy this is, he netted 80 goals in all competitions in 101 games, which in terms of figures is just downright ridiculous. Um, wouldn't be eclipsed until perhaps 2007, 2008, 2009 figures for Cristiano Ronaldo when he was approaching his peak at Manchester United. Man United hadn't really had a talismanic striker like this since perhaps Eric Cantona. Cantona probably had more of an influence. Rude van Nistelrooy was purely about goals. Cantona probably didn't get as many as uh, Rude did down the years. Neither did really Andy Cole, Dwight York, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer of treble fame. Teddy Sheringham only scored five goals, I think, in the uh, treble winning season. Uh, they were on rotation quite a lot. Dwight York, of course, had the fantastic season that season. But neither him nor Cole... Um, really hit the heights consistently of 25-plus goals every single season. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was more... Even notorious for coming off the bench, wasn't he? Those four goals against Nottingham Forest, for example. So he was never getting 20, 25 goals plus every single season. Rude van Nistelrooy was doing this. Wayne Rooney, of course, he would come in afterwards. He would dip in and out of goal-scoring form 2009-10 to about 11-12 um, when he had to become the man in terms of goal scoring, in between Cristiano Ronaldo coming to his four and then leaving, and then when Robin van Persie came in and scored the 30 goals in the uh, 20th and final, as it is now, um, Premier League winning season. And uh, that is probably, in terms of modern Premier League days, alongside Ruud van Nistelrooy, the only talismanic, prolific goal scorer that Manchester United have had, really, which is which is kind of surprising when you consider that they've dominated or did dominate English football from 1993 to 2013, really two decades of dominance, 13 league titles in there, and they never truly had 
not many prolific goal scorers. Cantona, as I said, was more influence on the entire team. Ruud van Nistelrooy was there, but it came in sort of like a lean spell. Wayne Rooney would, of course, dip in and out of goal scoring form, as I say. And in terms of the 100 Premier League goals club, only really Ryan Giggs, Paul Scholes and Wayne Rooney played um, the majority of their football for Manchester United. Andy Cole scored a lot of goals for Newcastle and afterwards um, for the likes of Blackburn, Man City, Portsmouth, etc. Um, Giggs and Scholes, they're probably only there because they played for Manchester United for 20 plus years and were relatively attacking players. You see the likes of Steven Gerrard and Frank Lampard on this list as well. Another 20-year veterans for one one club or so, really. Um, Wayne Rooney, of course, played from 16 to that 32 in the Premier League, didn't he? And obviously played for Everton, but the majority of his time there was for Manchester United. So we go to 2003-04 season for Ruud van Nistelrooy. Still bringing in those goals, really, 30 goals in 44 games. No silverware to speak of, really, apart from the FA Cup final, of course, against Millwall. In Cardiff, there the 3 0 win. Uh, 2004 5, slightly uh, dipping form due to injury, perhaps, but still 16 goals in 27 is a decent enough return. And then in his final season, we've got 24 goals in 47 games in the 2005 6 season. So those injury problems slightly uh, bubbling to the fore as Rude gets into his late 20s, early 30s. And as we get to the 2006 League Cup final, this would be. Manchester United's second piece of silverware in three years. We had the FA Cup in 2004, the League Cup against Wigan in 2006 was a 4-0 win for Manchester United and he famously was dropped for that match. And you have Wayne Rooney reaching this maturity, Ronaldo was reaching his peak and 2005-06 season, I seem to remember a fantastic goal against Portsmouth and then from then on he just kicked on the 2006 World Cup proved to be a turning point. Everyone thought he would leave, bust up with Wayne Rooney in the quarterfinal there, but of course, that uh, didn't materialise from the off really in the 2006-07 season started with uh, four goals in the first 20 minutes or so, something daft like that, and setting each other up for goals and that would of course blossom into the Champions League three league titles in a row. All of this though was without Ruud van Nistelrooy. And uh, I think... All of those, the three R's in their peak, so to speak, would have been great in the trio, but it wouldn't wasn't to be because it was a very public falling out between Rude van Nistelrooy and Cristiano Ronaldo in training. Rude has since apologised to Ronaldo for what he had said to him remarks about his father who had passed away beforehand, and there was a very obvious decision there for Ferguson. Cristiano Ronaldo, early 20s, a seemingly invisible seal into his talents and Manchester United got the tip of the iceberg really with that when you look at his career overall. The decade or so since he left Manchester United ascended to even more heights and um, Ruud van Nistelrooy, a striker reaching 30 with a very obvious chequered history when it came to injuries. Of course, Ferguson chose Ronaldo. He added the likes of Dimitar Berbatov, Carlos Tevez, Nani. And then coming out of a lean spell to win three Premier League titles, a Champions League, of course, so much more, the League Cup in 2009-2010. But unfortunately, this was without Ruud van Nistelrooy, and I think he would have definitely had his place in this team, more so along the lines of a Dimitar Berbatov. Similar sort of players, really, in their aloofness, in uh, wanting to defend, and both fantastic goal scorers. I think Ruud van Nistelrooy probably had a better eye for a goal than Berbatov. Carlos Tevez, different type of player, you come regardless, I think. 
and um, that would have been something to something to watch really and when Ronaldo leaves in 2009 that would have been a good jumping off point for Rude van Nistelrooy as well really but of course these are uh, what ifs which we'll get onto later on so memories of Rude van Nistelrooy well we've got of course we have to start with the battles with Arsenal Manchester United's main rivals really in the uh, the likes of Man City dipping and out of the Premier League at the turn of the century not really battling really for honours they were in the mid-table at the time Liverpool had reached a downslope really and they would win the Champions League of course in 2005 but domestically not really there so Arsenal were primarily Manchester United's huge rivals from when Arsene Wenger took the job to around 2005 6-ish time when uh, they were battling for FA Cups, Premier Leagues etc. Of course Martin Keown was at the heart of that um, Rude Van Nistelrooy as we said Huge part to play in the 2-2 draw in uh, late, must have been April 2003, and that pretty much set Manchester United on their way to the league title that season. Of course, later that year, the other side of the summer, 2003-04 season, the invincible season wouldn't have been if Ruud van Nistelrooy wouldn't have missed that penalty in the 0-0 in, I think, September 2003. Of course, that clothesline from Keown afterwards, a mass brawl, fines, big suspensions, Battle of Old Trafford, as it was known. Um, and then the redemption story, a year on, a little more than a year on. The penalty that ended Arsenal's 49 matches unbeaten. Man United win 2 0. Cesc Fabregas throws a pizza at Alex Ferguson. I think that was the same game. Um, all comes to a head in the February 2005 match where John O'Shea scores that chip at Highbury and uh, obviously more famous for the Roy Keane Patrick Vieira tunnel bust up. But I think after that, with Roy Keane's departure, um, with Patrick Vieira's departure, of course, and um, these sort of this rivalry sort of bled bled out. Arsenal weren't as successful. Manchester United would come again with the likes of Ronaldo, Rooney, etc., win Champions League, and were just that bit more successful and always had the edge over United over Arsenal in terms of uh, domestically and especially European. When you think of the the semi final in two thousand and nine, so. For me, he's definitely up there. Ruud van Nistelrooy with my favourite goal scorers. Just misses out on the top 10 of all time for Manchester United. I think he's about four or five behind Paul Scholes. Got 150 goals for United. He's got the best goals to game ratio of the highest scorers. So, you know, George Best, Dennis Law, Bobby Charlton, Wayne Rooney, Cristiano Ronaldo. Anybody that you can think of who's got a lot of goals for Manchester United. Ruud van Nistelrooy is right up there. And if he had had a few more years, he would have been immortal for me. He was just the right player at the wrong time. Classic poacher. Not too many of his goals really stick in the mind too much. You've got that reverse volley at Charlton, I think it was. Showed in those glimpses that he had a great combination with Wayne Rooney. And if he had Wayne Rooney alongside him at his peak, that would have been something to behold, really. He had Dwight York levels of understanding with Beckham out wide you know, from the treble winning season. That was a huge combination for United. And Beckham and Rude didn't have... Didn't get to play with each other that much, but um, they showed great understanding when they did. And uh, how things might have been different had Rude Van Nistelrooy signed in 2000. So, quick what if, why not? So, 2000-2001, Manchester United saw to the Premier League title, as they would in real life, really. Rude Van Nistelrooy probably snatch a couple of goals against Bayern in the Champions League quarterfinal, swing that tie the other way, and uh, would gain revenge from Real Madrid in the semi-finals from the year prior. Snatch a win in the Bernabeu get them, beat them, get Valencia in the final and uh, you'd 
probably fancy Manchester United to beat Valencia in the San Siro in the 2001 final. They'd push on for the next season. Probably get to the final beyond Bayer Leverkusen in the 2001-2 season with that base that uh, Van Ryde built up. A bit more comfort in his second season there. Uh, probably not win that match against Real Madrid because of one Zinedine Zinangle that we'd... Uh, that is immortalised really now uh, forevermore. Uh, maybe win the league against Arsenal in 2002. Definitely would in 2003. Um, even with this um, extra season, extra immortalisation at Old Trafford, Ferguson would probably still choose Cristiano Ronaldo, though in 2006, Rude Van Nistelrooy's injury history, his age, etc. But that extra year meant that Rude Van Nistelrooy would probably enjoy a more fulfilled time at Old Trafford, another Premier League or two and a Champions League winner's medal, which was probably one of the only things that evaded him really at Old Trafford there. So he goes from Manchester United to Real Madrid. His scoring and success don't drop off immediately. He's got two league medals to his name with Real Madrid. Gets to play with David Beckham again in his final year in 2006-07, before Beckham, of course. Moves to the MLS, moves to uh, LA Galaxy. And uh, Rude would see out his career in Hamburg, in Malaga. And for the Netherlands... They've only really got Robin Van Persie, Patrick Clivert, Klaasjan Huntelaar, Dennis Bergkamp and Ian Robin with more goals for the national team. Ruud van Nistelrooy is um, the player who scored the most goals at the European Championships for the Netherlands, tied with Patrick Clivert on six and only scored at one World Cup, once at a World Cup. However, the winner against uh, Ivory Coast in 2006. And it's a shame really for the Dutch that in his peak, Ruud van Nistelrooy's peak was around 2002. And the Dutch didn't qualify for that World Cup, famously missing out to uh, Ireland and Portugal. Ireland, who, of course, beat them at Lansdowne Road there in 2001, Jason McAteer. And as a result, he only, Ruud van Nistelrooy only played at one World Cup. But at the year, as he was, um, he got them probably at his peak, four goals in the group stages in 2004, almost won the Golden Boot, probably would have done if they had got through to the final, they're missing out to uh, Milan Barros and was tied with future England uh, Manchester United teammate Wayne Rooney. And for me, he probably would have solidified himself alongside the great names of Dutch football, Van Bast and Cruyff, if they had won Euro 2004, maybe. If they get through that semi-final against Portugal, they do win Euro 2004 and Ruud van Nistelrooy has a much more storied career. And I think now he probably gets forgotten about he had that huge battle with Thierry Henry for the Golden Boots. Now Thierry Henry is obviously a more complete player than Ruud van Nistelrooy. But in terms of goals, I'd like to think they're a bit more head-to-head than people will remember now. In the early 2000s, Ruud van Nistelrooy was one of the greatest goal scorers, not only in the Premier League, but worldwide for me, alongside likes of Raul, Shevchenko, Henry as well, and um, deserves to be remembered in those ilks, in that sort of same vein as those legends as well. After this short break, we'll be staying in England for a little team profile on a little club called Fulham. Welcome back to the show. So we're going to be discussing Fulham in the second half of the show. So last time Fulham were in the top flight, of course, prior to their re-emergence in the Premier League in the mid two thousand, early 2000s. Alan Clark was up front, World Cup winner George Cohen was in defence, Bobby Robson was in interim charge after finishing up his playing career and the year was 1968. Fulham since had found themselves in the third tier in 1969 after successive relegations, again in 1980 and once more in 1986. 
and the lowest of the low was yet to come. Whilst Blackburn Rovers were winning the Premier League in 1995, Fulham were in the fourth tier of English football, now known as League Two. Mickey Adams would save them as player manager, he took them up to the third tier, Kevin Keegan took the reins and returned them to the second tier in the 1998-1999 season before, of course, leaving the job to take up the mantle of England manager after Glenn Hoddle. The likes of Barry Hales, Jeff Horsfield, snatched from Halifax Town. Mike Taylor, Rufus Brevet, Chris Coburn, Steve Finnan and Sean Davis were the star turns and made up quite a lot of that team that broke into the Premier League in 2001. Paul Bracewell was the manager after Kevin Keane, couldn't command successive promotions, but in uh, Mohamed Al-Fayed, you had a very ambitious chairman and he brought aboard Jean Tiganar, the former European Championship winner with France in 1984 and a manager by this stage. He came in as boss. Louis Saha, his compatriots, smacked in 30 plus goals and Fulham were champions of the first division or the championship and Mohamed Al-Fayed, Fulham, they were in the Premier League. They were also in the money. Fulham spent huge to compete in uh, relative terms in 2001 as well. Edwin van der Sar, former Champions League winner, a ridiculous signing from Juventus at the time. £7 million splurged on him. Steed Malbronk, Sylvan Legvinsky, mainstays in the Fulham team in the early 2000s. Bought a snip and uh, Steve Marley commanded a £11.5 million fee. Didn't quite live to the expectations of the previous three, but was a, a drop in the ocean, so to speak. A big splash, more um, accurately there. Fulham were not to be the whipping boys. Got a slender loss at Old Trafford in the first game, which coincidentally was Ruud van Nistelrooy's debut match for Manchester United. So it all ties in together, doesn't it? And Fulham only lost four times before Christmas, which was... Uh, which is very impressive for a newly promoted team. And the teams they lost to were the likes of Arsenal, who would go on to win the league, of course, Aston Villa and Tottenham, probably more mid-table clubs around that time. Um, Fulham were safe and mid-table alongside Villa and Spurs and were achieving above and beyond expected, really. And they were safe in mid-table for a Christmas Day. They were safe and in mid-table by the end of the season. They were despite the six losses in a row, a bit of a slide, although admittedly to the likes of Arsenal, Liverpool, Chelsea, Everton and Spurs again. But safety was never in doubt. They guaranteed another season in the Premier League with wins against Leeds, who um, by this point was still a big team, still at the top of the table around the top six. And Bolton, another uh, newly promoted team who, had, uh, who would go on to bigger and better things, of course. A bit like Fulham, really. And Fulham's season was... Uh, wrapped up nicely with an FA Cup semi-final, only their fifth ever FA Cup semi-final, but they wouldn't emulate the 1975 side who reached the final because they lost to Chelsea in the semi-finals. Of course, that 1975 side lost to West Ham 2-0, so Fulham have yet to win an FA Cup. Since in the 2000s or early 2010s, the closest Fulham ever got to replicate in these two sides were the quarter-final defeats in 2004 to Manchester United, 2009 again to Manchester United and 2010 to Tottenham Hotspur. So, Fulham are a team for me when I think of them in the early 2000s that have a lot of cult heroes in that first wave of signings. You've got Facundo Sava, who had that Zorro mask whenever he scored. He didn't get to whip it out as much as probably he would have hoped or the Fulham fans would have hoped. You've got John Collins and you've also got Collins John quickly enough, which... Uh, to uh, marksman there but the 
unfortunately he didn't cross over and he didn't have Collins John and John Collins in the same team as John Collins retired the same summer that Collins John came in uh, Zach Knight was a rock at the back and a superb defender of his time Luis Bonmorse was class that celebration was equally good uh, Moritz Volts or as he's known 15,000 volts as he scored the 15,000th Premier League goal you've also got the likes of Brian McBride who's a fantastic striker for the time Carlos Bocchinegra a fantastic defender as well the manager changed. Chris Coleman was in for Jean Tigonard. The ground even changed. They had a, Of course, they had a two-year stint at Loftus Road. The fortunes, by position at least, weren't really... They were sort of on an even keel. 13th became 14th. Um, but admittedly, a last-ditch Chris Coleman scramble at the, in the last few weeks of the Premier League season was needed to secure survival. And uh, perhaps this was the early European jaunts of the season, catching up to them because, yes, in 2002, Fulham played in Europe for the first time and they won the Intertoto Cup, much maligned as it was. Um, the uh, first match in Europe was in the Intertoto against Hacker of Finland. They scraped through that on away goals, beat the likes of Igalio of Greece. No, I mean, either, I don't remember them. And um, beating the likes of Socio and Bologna more established names of European top five leagues to qualify for what was then known the UEFA Cup, the 2002-03 season of the FA, of the UEFA Cup, which did have a British team in the final. It just wasn't Fulham, it wasn't even English, it was, of course, Celtic. And um, on their way to the round of 32 where Fulham got knocked out, Hajduk split and Dinamo Zagreb were eliminated because Fulham just seemingly hated Croatian opposition and qualified through to the third round where they unfortunately met their demise at the hands of Hertha Berlin. Chris Coleman's full season, first full season, granted them a position of ninth in the 2003-04 season and that second wave of talent arrived as Louis Sahar, their star man for so many years, left for Manchester United in January 2004. So you see the likes of Thomas Radzinski, Papa Bouba Diop was huge stalwart for Fulham, Andy Cole, Philippe Christian Val, and most importantly, perhaps, Clint Dempsey. More on him later for a crucial goal in Fulham's history. But in and amongst this, through Chris Coleman, Fulham had stagnated. 13th place became 12th, became 16th. Chris Coleman was sacked. Laurie Sanchez was the caretaker manager. Didn't last too long. And despite the signs of Aaron Hughes, Stephen Davis, Diamante Camera, Chris Baird, Paul Koncheski, Danny Murphy, names who would be, be who would become synonymous with Fulham later on in the day. Um, Fulham won only two games prior to February 2008 in the league and for the first time relegation was a very, very real threat. Enter the Hodgson, enter Roy Hodgson. Roy Hodgson would get them into contention for Premier League survival with wins against Aston Villa and Everton before they finally won away their very first away win of the season at the Majewski Stadium at Reading who would suffer relegation. Fulham's next away trip would be the most pivotal, perhaps, in their recent history. April the 26th, Etihad Stadium, or City of Manchester Stadium, as it was then known. A loss would mean relegation, even with two games to spare. Stephen Ireland, then Ben Jani would score for Manchester City. City legends before the uh, before the takeover there. With 20 minutes to go, Fulham looked down and out. Diamante Camera scores. Fulham then win a penalty 10 minutes later. Danny Murphy misses, but steals in with the rebound. But still with 11 minutes on the clock, Fulham need a winner. The board goes up for stoppages. Diamante Camera receives the ball 20 yards out, turns, bangs in the winner. That celebration that he does 
I, I still don't understand what it means. Um, Fulham were safe for now, 3-2. This is the game that sticks in the minds of fans, really, for the turnaround that led to Fulham's survival and, of course, what happened in the next couple of seasons. And it sticks in my mind, to be fair, when I think of Fulham's great escape, this is the one game you think of, really. But perhaps the real clincher, um, the best, the biggest game, is the game the following week. They're playing relegation rivals Birmingham. Brian McBride, Eric Nevelin both score late on, which left the fate in Fulham's hands going into the last game of the season. Reading and Birmingham would win on the final day to force Fulham's hand a little bit. And uh, Fulham, therefore, needed a win at Portsmouth. They'd not won away for ages. They'd won the last two away games and then another away game, Portsmouth. Portsmouth, thankfully, though, for Fulham, were preparing for an FA Cup final. They would win that, of course, against Cardiff. Uh, Danny Murphy scored the winner here. Fulham was safe, safe for another day. And this was enough of a warning sign for Roy Hodgson for Fulham to spend relatively big in the summer of 2008. Mark Schwarzer came in, Zoltan Gera, Bobby Zamora, John Pantzel, Andy Johnson, Dixon, Etuhu, and the core of their Europa League team the following season was added to. Europa League? Well, that was because Roy Hodge had slingshotted Fulham from 17th place to 7th. It was a hugely tight-knit squad. In that defence, you've got Breda Hangeland, you've got Aaron Hughes, you've also got Paul Koncheski in there. Clint Dempsey, of course, will bubble to the fore. You've got Simon Davis, Andy Johnson, Bobby Zamora made for a decent enough strike partnership. The goals were spread fairly evenly. Nobody scored more than 10 in all competitions, that is. Andy Johnson top scored in the 08-09 season with 10 goals, but it was very much a season built on defence and rearguard action. They only scored 39 in the league, for example, but they only did concede 34. Only Man United, Liverpool and Chelsea, that's first, second and third, had a better defensive record and won another game, won another season in Europe with a game to spare in seventh. And again, it was the depths of pre-season beforehand. It was the Intertoto Cup. Now we name it more glamourly, glamorously the third qualifying round of the Europa League, the very first Europa League of uh, since its renaming from the UEFA Cup. And that posted Fulham out in Lithuania with uh, Vetra, who I've never heard of, unfortunately. Then Amka Perm in Russia. They then beat the scourge of English football in the group stages. FC Basel home and away to solidify their place in the knockout phase for the very first Europa League. Got a pretty good point against Roma as well. And uh, it wasn't even their best result against Italian opposition at Craven Cottage of that. We will discuss more in just a moment. And the round of 32 meant the holders Shakhtar Donetsk. Hardly the prize they wanted after finishing in second place. But they would hold on 1-1 in Ukraine to qualify. And the biggest, the bigger carrot for this was Juventus in the last 16. Juventus, multiple-time European champions. Obviously, I'd just come off the back of Calcio Poli. Were just finding their footing back in Serie A. Weren't regular Champions League contenders just yet. They would, of course, the season after this, win the Serie A once more. Of course, this was a season of Inter Milan's treble winning season, so Juventus, of course, couldn't win the Champions League or Serie A in this season. And of course, it was a, it was a Juventus with nine men. It was a Juventus without an Alessandro Del Piero. It was a Juventus without Gianluigi Buffon. Fabio Cannavaro was sent off early. Jonathan Zabino was also sent off. But David Trezeguet did score after two minutes, and it meant that Fulham were 4-1 down on aggregate. And with that 
obstacle, more of a steep vertical mountain. Fulham had to score four goals. They were written off. And this was probably the best night in Channel 5 history in terms of football, maybe even in total TV. <laughs> maybe perhaps with uh, Middlesbrough's running 2006 aside. But Fulham were level by 49 minutes. Zoltan Gera grabbed a double, Bobby Zamora, of course, levelled things up on the night at least. And then with eight minutes left, perhaps the best goal in Fulham's history, Clint Dempsey gets the goal 82 minutes on the clock easily. Fulham's greatest night in existence as a football club, a 5-4 aggregate win over Juventus. And then that defensive regard action, as seen in the previous, previous summer, previous season in the Premier League, rears its head, clean sheets in back-to-back -back games in Germany, sees Fulham through to the final. First a 1-0 win in Germany, in Wolfsburg, the reigning German champions, let's not forget, and then a 0-0 in Hamburg, followed by a 2-1 win at home, which sends Fulham into the Europa League final. Hamburg was the host of the final, of course, and waiting there were Atletico Madrid, but unfortunately for Fulham, that was the end of the road. There were no good omens about that. They wouldn't run out of steam, though, which we had seen with uh, Middlesbrough, got picked apart in their final 4-0 in 2006. However, Fulham and Roy Hodgson took Atletico Madrid to extra time in that beautiful LG dark blue kit. Uh, Fulham had some good kits back in the day. The dabs.com one with the one black sleeve was lovely. Of course, how can we forget the Pizza Hut kit as well? One of the great um, Premier League sponsors of the 2000s alongside Wolves' Doritos number there in the 2003-04 season. But this game would end in heartbreak. Diego Forlan won the game on 116 minutes and a team that would four years later be in the Champions League final. Fulham took all the way and that is something to be proud of alongside, of course, the generational evening on on the uh, riverfront, the 5-4 aggregate win against Juventus. And that was the story of Fulham. They maintained 12th place during that European effort, returned to the top half um, in 8th and 9th, but fell off a cliff, would be relegated two years later in 2014. And in the past three years, they have returned to the Premier League, but have become more of a yo-yo outfit. They've been up twice through the playoff final, and they've been down twice, relegated fairly convincingly under Scott Parker's Premiership, who has since departed. Next week, we'll be looking at a list of underrated Premier League forwards that you have submitted me, so looking forward to that one. And we'll be discussing Arsenal after the glory days in the Premier League. That is post-2005, of course. As I said earlier on in the show, if you are enjoying the show, please drop us a five-star review. We'd be very grateful for that. It does help us out with uh, new viewership and new listeners to the show. Going forward in August, we will be expanding the podcast feed to uh, welcome in Ranked, which is obviously a series on YouTube at the minute, but we'll be moving that to audio only. And of course, we'll be premiering the Barclays, where we'll take a month-by-month -month snapshot of the Premier League from 1992 right the way to present day, hopefully. Yeah, we'll see how long we can stick that one out. And um, until next time, see you Podcast Network. Life's better with American Family Insurance. 
Because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.